Hello and welcome to Trees Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about tennis again. Yes. We've been to see it now in full IMAX. Yes. Whereas the first time we saw it in the IMAX digital, which is basically widescreen. A big widescreen, but widescreen. Now we've been to see it at the Manchester, whatever it's called. It was at the Printworks. It's That's the right. proper IMAX cinema at... The, the second biggest screen in the country. Yeah. Outside of the BFI IMAX, and not that much smaller than it. And a lot cheaper. It was £10 a ticket. Yeah, right. And in the VIP section as well, I'm assuming, because that's the same price as regular, so I'm assuming right. that's a reopening promotional thing, whereas £25 a ticket in the BFI, yes. which is mad. I must say, I didn't like the film any better. In fact, I liked it even less watching it. But seeing it on, on the IMAX screen really raised a lot of questions for me because, you know, for someone who's so careful and precise about so many aspects of cinema... How can he allow his films to be shown in different ratios? Because the thing is that the, the, the IMAX screen and the widescreen are really different ratios, yeah? So the whole thing looks different. One looks like a, uh, not quite a square, but squarish. You know, I, I just thought it, like it was very place. revealing, you know, because part of my criticism about uh, Nolan is that his compositions are... You know, they're not what you expect of a great filmmaker, right? That the compositions alone mm-hmm. are very expressive or evocative or beautiful or, right? The, 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 his compositions don't grab you in that way. And actually, to me, this is kind of a key to understanding that because, you know, you can't compose for different formats. They're one type of composition in an IMAX cinema and then, you know, they become a, another type of composition in the widescreen. So the compositions, I mean are distorted either in one or the other, yeah? Mm. And actually, kind of, most people are not seeing it in IMAX, so, you know, if he's composing for IMAX, then actually that's not what people are seeing. Right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, really. It's the objections that people had about panning and scanning mm. on television or, you know, using a wide lens, but also having the little television quadrangle in the middle of your viewfinder so you, you know you're, you're really composing for television yeah so the essential information is is in the middle that middle of the frame but then you could you know use little bits on the sides if it's shown in a cinema right mm. uh, but since they were going to cut it anyway yeah so that was a way in which actually people tried to compose yeah for both mm. uh, for two different types of frame but with a consciousness Actually, they were losing out on both, that they weren't making the most of either. Yeah. Mm. Here's what I would say about looking at it in IMAX now that we've seen it in uh, a regular cropping. Is I felt like the full IMAX frame added almost nothing to the experience. And, you know, that may have something to do with uh, just unimaginative or kind of boring compositions. I think, I think it does have something mm. to do with that. I don't think there's a really imaginative composition in the whole film. Mm. Um, I like the way it looks enough in regular widescreen and I like some of the centre scale you got here but actually there's not a huge lot you know, when I saw Dunkirk uh, again at the Printworks in Manchester there was a real feeling of scale and beauty and a, a, a kind of horror almost to, mm. to the images there when I saw um, The Dark Knight at the what used to be the Birmingham IMAX which we don't have anymore you know, that opening shot, which I mentioned on one of the podcasts, where it's just this 
boom on the soundtrack and the kind of mid-air shot of a skyscraper you know felt like flying and it was this huge experience there's not a single shot in this that makes you feel like that the quality of the image is extraordinary it's superb yeah um imax film is you can't talk about it exactly in terms of resolution like you can with digital filmmaking um because it's you know random grain structure but it's said to be around 18k mm. That would be when you start to kind of see the grain structure and, you know, mm. lose the beauty of the image, I guess. Um, which is vast, you know, like when you consider people are filming on 4K, maybe 8K yes. digitally and not and certainly not exhibiting on 8K. Um, so it looks amazing. And also, I think the 65mm footage that's there in between the IMAX stuff, which is a huge proportion, the IMAX stuff, mm. but the 65mm that's there... It is just as beautiful, actually. And normally you can see a very, very clear difference, or at least you have done in the past, I think, uh, with Nolan's work. And it, it just seems to be a higher quality film here because it is it is just as sharp. You get just as much detail. Yeah. I think it's really beautiful, that, that, that stuff. Yeah. Just the quality of the texture of the image. You see, for me, the uh, frame uh, brought out other problems as well in the second viewing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that kind of IMAX frame, which is closer to a 4-3 ratio, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you would expect is very good for faces, yeah, yeah for framing mm-hmm. performances and performers. And, and, of course, I love the big screen and so on because, you know, you are in people's faces or people's faces are on, you, on your mind and body, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it kind of, it normally forms like a kind of a link with the performer that... I think is more intense, uh, and it really brought out the inadequacies uh, to me in um, what's his name, uh, the protagonist, John David Washington. John David Washington. I thought uh, it's one thing to be a blank like uh, Keanu Reeves is in the uh, Matrix. In the Matrix, but you know, Keanu Reeves is so charismatic and beautiful, and he moves with such grace, and mm. you know, you can't stop looking at him, right? Well, actually, I, th- I just thought, you know, um, what's his name again? <laughs> John David Washington. John David Washington. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's not that he was bad, but he lacked charisma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think this is a criticism I made in the first podcast. Okay. That, you know, I think the film is trying to use him as a kind of Neo. Right. In that sense of a blank to learn about the world. And actually, he doesn't carry that off. I wish he had more of a reaction to things. In a sense, I, I liked him more to some degree here. I liked more the spark that he had with Robert Pattinson. I think they do have chemistry. Um, it's quite light, but I well, think they do. I mean, I I think, you know, obviously the scenes get livened up because Pattinson is so charismatic, mm. you know, and and uh, you can't stop looking at him. And he's doing more interesting things, yeah. you know, with his line readings and so on. He's, he's A, a better actor, and B, he's a star, you know, neither of which Washington is. I agree. And I do essentially agree that John David Washington's performance is a problem. But what I was reflecting on this time is how beautiful he is. I mean, maybe we can disagree uh, on that. Maybe as a gay man you would disagree on that. I, 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 I think, he, I, I think I he was very pleasurable to look at. He's trimmed his beard to within an inch of his life. He's very well taken care of. I think he has a beautiful kind of... Uh, complexion, the mm. kind of quality of his skin, and the film really picks up all of that about him. There's something very soft and beautiful about his skin, and I thought, actually, it's a real pleasure just to look at this guy. Yeah, I really like that. 
I don't see that. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, imagine what somebody like the now late Chadwick Boseman would have brought to this role. Mm. Yeah, where he just smiles and like the screen lights up in Black Panther, right? Mm. You know, I mean, there's nothing like that here. Yeah. Um, so out, out of a young crop of black stars... Who's the other one who's in Creed and Fruitvale Station? Oh, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, he's wonderful, mm. right? Imagine either of those two in this part. Mm. I think the film would have been different, really. Uh, so it made me appreciate uh, Patterson more. And also, Debiki is just, I think she's wondrous to look at. The Kenneth Branagh, I think he's also charismaless. And very unsexy, deeply unsexy, and so on. But he's but he's a very good actor. So actually, he brings in that sense of menace and so on. Yeah, through mm. performance. Yeah, he's not relying on you know charisma or screen presence or the camera loving him or all those things that we often use to talk about stars. Mm. He's not a film star, you know. But he is a very accomplished actor, and he kind of brings that into play in the film, which which I think makes Washington's weaknesses all the more apparent because he's not really doing one and he's not doing the other mm. you know yeah shall we just quickly say uh, we've done well to not talk about spoilers spoiler territory up until now but I think we probably will be at some point well we did before so why so, not again well, yeah, just, <laughs> there will be spoilers coming up I think uh-huh. at least some of the stuff I want to talk about is spoiler related okay. um, so you were there things you enjoyed this time that you didn't the first time for instance yes but they're really you know, well, give me a sense. Give me a sense. Silly queeny things. So, for example, one of the things that I loved in an IMAX was that you could tell the texture of people's clothes, mm. right? So those woolens and worsted and those wonderful, fabulous suits that Elizabeth the Beaky wore. Uh, you could tell that uh, the white shirts that Michael Caine and uh, Kenneth Branagh wore were d- deep, rich, thick cotton. <laughs> You know, with the little dots on them, yeah, like a, you know, so. So the production uh, values yeah. come out through the film. <laughs> That's right. So I paid, you know, kind of attention to all of those things in terms of the plot, in terms of the action, in terms of the whole idea of time. I had even more problems, you know. And the thing is that for me, like the second viewing, only revealed weaknesses it you know so it's not as if i felt oh i missed something the first viewing and now i have a deeper appreciation of it it was almost like the opposite right uh i i feel uh i come out of the second viewing with a worse opinion of the film than can you give me an example of the kind yes of i mean i you know i was looking this time very actively for the action sequences the going backward and forward mm-hmm. right you know and it just felt silly really and it felt also kind of basic like you know, so, uh, you know, a lot of that was just uh, using re- uh, uh, reverse motion, right? And all clearly there was a choreographing of the extras as well, but it's felt but now because there's no payoff, right? So again, you know, one of the things that I criticized last time was, you know, the sense of danger of, you know, buildings falling and then they go the reverse, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you just don't feel any sense of excitement or suspense or worry that some building might fall on any of them, right? Mm. So so that kind of brought out the lacks uh, more clearly to me. Uh, the thing about the time, it made it even seem more stupid to me, right? Because so this time I was thinking, you know, um, that the film was 
kind of unsophisticated. That, that, so I said before that comic books had been doing this like, you know, 50 years ago and you, you brought out a Red Dwarf thing. Yeah, yeah, I was reminded in the week of an episode of Red Dwarf from 1989, which is Series 3, Episode 1, called Backwards. And it's a, a very well-known episode, and I've seen it before, where the characters literally visit, or uh, well, they go through a parallel universe. They go through a time hole, I think. Mm. You know, it's a comedy show. And they go to a parallel Earth where everything is backwards. So time runs backwards. Also, place names are backwards, so London is not null. There's a job listing in a newspaper, and they go, it's got very good demotion prospects. You know, mm. So it's, everything is backwards in this world. And because I didn't know why you were bringing up comic books specifically, because it seems to me that time travel and, and time inversions and all those kind of planes with time have happened in pretty much every medium. Not just comics, you know, novels well, and films. Well, I mean, I just mentioned that. comics because that's where, where I encountered it. I yeah. mean, you know, I was I was a, a tween, you know, who was mad about comics. Yeah. And, you know, that's how I encountered it. And it was a much more sophisticated in the comics, you know, than what you see in Nolan. So, for example, you know, one of the things was that people keep going back in time, mm. right? And so, theoretically, you know, that's an, an endless loop, right? I.e., you know, Kenneth Branagh could see previously or could revert back in time, right, before his death, right? So the, the, the film makes this thing about killing him at a particular time in order to avoid that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, but the thing is that every time you step back in time, yeah, kind of your actions change time. Yeah, it's like the butterfly effect, right? Yeah, so what happens is in comic books at least is that you know, you could go back in time multiple times, but actually those realities then exist as alternate realities, yeah, kind of equal possibilities, you know, across different timelines and worlds, yeah? They don't end. Well, it does depend on, on your particular fiction's version of time travel. There are many. You know, there's, not, there's not one idea of how time travel works. So in some things, there's an idea of going back in time and whatever you end up doing has already happened. So you're fitting into whatever's already there. And this has a sense of that, for instance, in the bit where um, Elizabeth Debicki's character goes back to the boat and she kind of plays herself in that holiday in, in um, Vietnam. And then she jumps off the boat. You realise that's what she saw. Yeah, she, she saw about, herself. You know, which is basically the thing from Interstellar. Yeah. You know, it was me all along, but done better. I mean, I think it works better here. And I think the reason oh. it works better here is because it's a, it's not fundamental to the centre. Like, the thing about Interstellar is, all along it was me, and that's the most important thing, and it was dumb. Whereas here, it's a side thing. That That is kind of one idea of time travel. You go back, and even though you th might think you're changing things they have already happened, so you're just... Whatever you're doing is somehow predetermined. And there are versions of time travel like Back to the Future where you go back and change things, and literally things change in the future, the butterfly effect thing. Yes. So it's not just a case of this is how comic books always did it. There will have been different versions. But, but this is a film which is based on a continuous going back in time. Yeah. So characters don't just go back in time. Yeah, they, they travel go, through time. They travel through time, and they do so repeatedly. Yeah. Well, they can flip whenever they like. They can flip whenever they like and they can change things whenever they like. But if they change things, then things have been changed. Unless they have already been changed and they're just what they're doing, what has already haven't been done. No, because once you return back in time, mm -hmm. then you can't use that excuse anymore. You know, the, the timeline, the reality of that timeline alters. What do you mean? Well, so for example, let's say, you know, I go back in time, yeah, and I see that I myself am crashing into this car and I intercept it so that the car doesn't crash, right? Well, you know, next time when I go back in time, 
yeah, if I go back post that moment, then that that time has been already been changed. But does that happen here? Doesn't it? I don't know. Does something like that happen? Yes, because Kenneth Branagh keeps going back in time. Yeah, he goes back for the Goya painting, right, and kind of removes it before she she gets it. And yeah, my understanding is that he goes back repeatedly in time. That 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 um that did require some explanation for me, or at least that came to, like that, that. I noticed that because he he removed the Goya painting from when they attacked the Freeport, which is where it's being kept. And he says, I've always had very good instincts about that. And it's not clear exactly what he means by that, whether he's had a message about that. Mm. Because there is this whole thing about sending messages. And not just messages, but items. So there's a thing about the gold that he receives on the boat. It flies up to his hand. So this is backwards travelling gold. And the idea is, I guess, that he has received this from the future and is sending it back to the past to be buried in that town where he comes from so he can discover it and mm. become richer. You know, and again, there's like, it builds in this chicken and egg thing of like what came first and you're never going to get to the bottom of it. Um, but then that, that, I suppose, does to some extent go into the forwards and backwards thing because if the idea is, and this is completely not shown at all, so this is just speculative, but I'm thinking about it, right? If the idea is that this gold has come from the future and been buried so that as a young man he can dig it up and discover it. Then if you think about the gold travelling backwards, right, for years and years it's been buried under the ground, waiting for him. And then he picks it up and travelling forwards starts to do stuff with it. So then the gold has, like, moved forward in time, or has it? So So that is somewhere where his actions affect something that has already happened. This it's very unsatisfying. I mean, so the film tells you... And I've explained it very badly, but, you know... <laughs> the film tells you about the grandfather paradox, right? That, you know, if you go back and kill your own grandfather, could you really have gone back and killed your own grandfather because you haven't been born, right? Yeah. So, so you know, there is a, a conundrum there that's kind of, you know, unexplainable. It is a paradox, as the film says. And the film answers it by going, we don't know, but they believe it, and that's all that counts. So yes. the film asks you to not really care. Yeah, but then, you know, you can't have the grandson kill the grandfather and keep going back to the past over and over <laughs> again, right? Yeah, because, I mean, that's what Kenneth Browning does. He goes back to the past recurringly. Yeah? I'm not sure where this recurringly is coming from. Yes, um, it, he goes back... Uh, uh, well, we see him uh, in the past and speaking to the past at several instances and at several different times in the past, right? He talks to the protagonist... Yeah, at the moment that the bomb is about to go off, uh, he meets with him in that corridor. Uh, there's the car chase where they meet again. I mean, those are th- th- yeah, several different instances. Oh, but are they different travelings? Isn't that on the same journey, basically? And when he speaks to him on the phone, um, it's when he's gone back to that moment, that, that holiday, and then reverted back to travelling forwards. Yeah, I, I, I mean, from what I understand, from, my, my, from what I was getting out of the film, and I think the film really rewards a second viewing. I felt it was, you know, mm. I, once, once, I was used, once I was used to roughly what was going to happen, you know, it, it was kind of filling in details. I, I was picking up on things yeah. that I'd missed. All the dialogue, for instance, that I felt like I'd missed the first time, stuff about the algorithm and stuff, I got more of here. And it's not just because, it's not at all because the dialogue itself is any clearer. I'm not sure that it is. But I was... I was accustomed to what I was going to have to listen for, you know, mm-hmm. so I picked up more. But what I got out of the timeline this time, what seems to have been clarified, is it's 
basically two trips. They travel forwards up until the banana room, as I called it in the first mm. podcast, the, the blue and red room. Then they travel backwards a week, back through the car chase, back through the attack on the free port with a jumbo jet, and back to, they're talking about the 14th, I guess, which was when this holiday in Vietnam was on the boat. And then they travel forwards again, which is when they engage in the fight. And so the so the fight in um, the Russian town and the stuff on the boat, that happens simultaneously. And that's on, I think, this date, the 14th they give. So it's only basically, so basically they go forwards, then backwards a while, then forwards again. I don't think there's more jumping than that. But doesn't uh, the Robert uh, Patterson character... He jumps slightly differently. He takes things upon himself. But um, I think the bulk of the characters just go backwards in one long go once. Yeah, but but I believe that the Robert Pattinson character says that they're going to meet again several times in the past, right? So the sense of a recurring traveling into the past is something that the film tells you is a fact. Says to John David Washington. Yeah. At the end when he says, yeah. We've got, I've got a past into... Yeah, because, yeah, so, so the end of one meeting is the beginning of another but then you know he says they will meet many different times yeah so yeah well i mean i don't know that's really external to the to what's going on in the film though well it's part of the film it's what it's 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 amongst the closing lines of one of the main characters right so um it's it's what you're told sure but i'm not sure what you're getting out of that that affects what we see in the bulk of the film well that for me is it, it made all of those elements even more confusing and unclear and kind of illogical right because every time you go to the past you, you're changing the future right so so you can't just keep going back and expecting things to be on the same continuum hmm. i mean i let that go <laughs> well, well you, the, ha- you have to because but I know, <laughs> well, here's the thing. it's an interesting thing because i was I've been thinking about this for four days and I've been making all sorts of notes and I talked to my brother as well on Friday night. Uh, he saw it um, the day after we did at the BFI and he was really angry. Like, prop- like you, you were a bit grumpy maybe. He was <laughs> fucking angry. He really? was just shouting. I couldn't get a word in. You know, he was like... Um, and it was... I think for him, it was about disappointment. Like, uh-huh. he wanted this to be so much more. He was very, very angry with the way it was... where it was going and stuff. Anyway, the point is... Um, I've been thinking about it a lot, and it occurs to me that one of the pleasures of Christopher Nolan's films is that, is sitting down, working through the logic in your head, thinking about it. That's something I enjoy, and I have enjoyed it for the last four days. I enjoyed it a lot with Inception. Mm. I enjoyed it with The Prestige. Like Just working out the kind of puzzle box of the film mm. is a pleasure, actually. I'm not sure it's a pleasure for everyone. <laughs> but for well, me it is and I don't think that's something to be sniffed at I like that you know I mean we've just been having a conversation for 10 minutes about how the logic works and you're just expressing dissatisfaction with it yes but I just think it's stupid but and, still I've, and not I've, well thought out but still I've liked working through it and I think that's and so that line of dialogue it's a kind of the film sort of contradicts itself that line of dialogue that Clement Posey has the uh, the French girl who runs the mm. lab at the start where she shows him the backwards-running gun and the backwards-running bullets, and she says, don't try to understand it, just feel it. I wish the film, to some extent, would take its own advice. But on the other hand, the fact that it doesn't, and it so insists upon its logic and its rules and playing through all the Mm. possibilities of the world it's set up, is really a pleasure for me. That's what I like. I'm happy that it's a pleasure for you, um, 
my own feeling is I'm not wasting that amount of thinking time on something so stupid. <laughs> you know, you, you can't ask people to think and say thought doesn't matter. You know, ignore it, feel it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I think. I think, <laughs> that, I think that line of dialogue is kind of... It, it's kind of a problem because it preaches something that went practice. It's know. a catch-all excuse for yeah. the faults in the film. Yeah, I, I, yeah, to some degree, if there are faults. But then I like thinking about them. I've enjoyed thinking about them for, for four days. You know, how does the logic work? And, and when it comes out on DVD, I will go through... You know, I'll look at the, the chase scenes and I will go frame by frame on, on what's going backwards and what's not and how's it interacting because I do like that. And that's really not to be sniffed at. And when we were talking... Well, I'm not sniffing at it, but I no. kind of uh, it's almost like I'm wishing... I wish you'd devote that attention to better films. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. But it's, and here's, here's another thing, right? The, the fundamental reason that I like the film more today is because I knew what to expect. And so I could appreciate the details mm. and appreciate putting together some of the way it's working more in my head because mm. it wasn't just a surprise to me much of what's happening in the first time round I was not making any sense of because it was just throwing things at me what I like more here for instance is the blue and red room the banana room um, I hadn't really picked up the first time that the reason that on the blue side of the room Kenneth Branagh's dialogue sounds garbled is because he's literally speaking backwards. It's being reversed. And then the reason it comes out of the speaker is because the speaker is reversing it so his question can be understood forwards. Because mm. it kind of sounded like he was speaking Russian, mm. you know? Because uh, I couldn't understand it. And then, of course, you go through the room and you see, you hear his questions being shouted and you hear John David Washington speaking what effect, effectively is backwards. But I, I hadn't... Because it was kind of happening quickly, I hadn't picked up that that's how that was working the first time. You're literally watching backwards action. Yes. Made it clearer this time. And also, the the thing of when people go into the turnstile, as I now know it's called, the backwards-making machine, they go in and come out at exactly the same time because that is a hinge in time. Mm. I hadn't appreciated that the first time, you know? So again, made okay. it clearer. I liked... I, 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 I grant you that, yeah. and I get that, right? You You see it again, and you notice more. Mm. But actually, the noticing more didn't end up making it better for me or more complex or yeah it just you do notice more mm. you know uh things that you missed out the first time you you do notice you certainly notice all the rhymings in different parts of the film you know kind of much more clearly and so on but it just didn't add up to a better film mm. so you oh know, no no i agree with that no no uh, that's a good point it's, it doesn't make it a better film it made the experience better no. i liked understanding more of it yes i mean i i like understanding more of it but I just didn't feel it was rewarding it didn't reward the attention mm. you know it's not you know because normally you I mean in films that are better you know you watch it again and you come with a renewed appreciation or an increased appreciation or you know other ideas of what the film does come to you it makes it a richer experience mm. you know to me this didn't make it a richer experience I just you know, you do notice more things. You're paying attention to different things because you know the plot, mm -hmm. right? But it didn't translate into, you know, um, your own appreciation is richer, but actually it confirms your initial view of the film just in a richer way, right? Yeah, I, kind of, I sort of see what you mean. I do like it more. and but, I, but it's true to say that what I like more is stuff that I already liked. Yes. It, I didn't like more anything that I didn't really care for the first time. Yeah, what did you think of the sound this time around? 
I was again paying attention to the soundtrack and not hearing anything that I really liked. Yeah, same with me. It's interesting. I saw a thing on Twitter um, that was the uh, opening opera scene and someone had put a piece of music from Inception over it and it just improved it a thousandfold. You know, just the identifiable theme, the, the... the sense of the melody, just the feeling that is created in that music. Um, and, and it's not to say that I just love Hans Zimmer's music uh, kind of unconditionally, because I don't. And I think you can really feel in a lot of his music a kind of industrial feel. And when I say industrial, I mean like it's the, the sense that his work is like he has like a factory of composition. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you listen to something like um, Danny Elfman, maybe. You know, I think a lot of Danny Elfman's music sounds pretty much the same. He goes through a lot of similar themes a lot in his mm. in his work. You can really tell a Danny Elfman piece, I think, uh, kind of within a few seconds of hearing it. He has some very similar ideas going on. On the other hand, you really feel like you know that guy through his music. Mm. I don't think you do that with Hans Zimmer. Mm. I think you feel that the, the, there's a kind of... It's like music to a brief, almost. Mm. Um, but with that said, his music does contain musical ideas and motifs that you recognise and themes and I, I think the music here lacks all of that mm. so I didn't like it anymore I, in fact I appreciated I suppose when it wasn't being used because you know it's so overwhelming the first time it's so loud throughout yeah. and that's pretty much the only comment we made I appreciated the moments when it dropped out here which aren't many mm. um, particularly the moment where Sata is killed and thrown over the boat and when he hits the handrail the music cuts out, and it's just it's like that bit from Titanic where the mm. guy hits the propeller blades. And that and actually, that's a moment. This was a reasonably full cinema today. I mean, there was still social distancing and stuff, but it was like a third to half full. It was it was pretty packed actually. And um, and at that moment, I heard people gasp. Mm. You know, it's, it's like it's quite a sort of um, brutal kind of death that's shown kind of face on. Like it's the most muted reaction though to any Nolan film that I have seen. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, when I went to see uh, Dunkirk, you know, in IMAX, it's like people were practically weeping, mm. right? You know, kind of, they were so emotionally involved. Um, Interstellar was, you know, kind of the same. And actually, I felt very alienated because people were really responding and I wasn't. Mm. And again, with Inception, like, you could see that people were really dazzled by it. I didn't get any sense of the audience involvement in those ways in this film. I agree with that. There is a big sense of having seen it before, I think, aesthetically, because mm. it is so similar, particularly to Inception, I think, mm. in its aesthetic and, and, and kind of sub-bond as well. Yes. Um, and I it mean, lacks the fun and the and the, the tone yes. of those. And in fact, one of the things I was talking about with my brother, um, he was very pissed off that it, it lacked aesthetic imagination I suppose it did and um, I agree with your brother and and actually we were talking about we were talking about imagination in the sense that okay here's another problem I have with it it's the um, climactic scene in the war where they go into the sort of underground bunker the military installments and they're there and that's where the physical algorithm is and they're on opposite sides of the barrier and stuff and I just thought and this is something my brother brought up is why does that have to be like that Right, there is this adherence to the aesthetic that this is in a Russian abandoned facility. It's a nuclear bunker. That's where it's all being kept. You've been told this variously, vaguely, and so when you get into this underground bunker, it's very dark. Um, the shots are very tight. 
you can hardly really see anything. You can hardly really get a sense of how many people are there and where they are. And I was just thinking, like, what's to prevent them from making a big, clean, white, bright sci-fi room and saying this is where the algorithm is kept? Just or, like that, or making it, or making it much deeper. So imagine what Spielberg would have done with that. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a tour de force scene. Right, yeah. full of excitement and laughs and danger and, you know, kind of, it would have gotten your heart pumping. I mean, this and that was nothing. Real, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was a real problem the first time because it led to confusion, you know, and we're in what's supposed to be a climactic moment. Yes. And it made more sense this time. I had seen the film once, but still, it, it's not good enough. It's, and actually, you go, well, just, where is the imagination? Yes. Where is the Spielberg flair? also would have brought emotion. So as well as the laughs and the thrills and the danger and all of that, you know, imagine what he would have made of the recognition of the... Patch. Yeah. Or another oh, no, tag on the, the bag. Yeah. yeah. You know, he would have milked that, you know, he would have, he would have made you, you know, mm. sniffle a bit, you know. Yeah. There's just none of that. It's almost like he's not interested mm. in emotion. The ending did still work on me, though. What I said was a touching ending with the recognition that he sacrificed himself for him and the thing they can have a friendship. My brother was suggesting... I think it was my brother. It might have been you in the first podcast. I actually don't remember. Suggesting when he mentions we know each other for a long time or we're going to have some adventures, why can't you see three or four snippets, flashbacks or flash-forwards, I suppose, of what those adventures will be? And I was thinking... Because I was really paying attention at this time and I thought, you know, there is room for that. But the film does still work. That ending does still work without See, that. I almost snorted. You know, I forget which line it was that Robert Patterson says, but I almost snorted. Uh, I had to restrain myself because I knew it would piss you off. <laughs> was it the, uh, the, I think for me, this is the end of A Beautiful Friendship. I, I forget. It might have been that. But I just thought, oh, God, that's so cheesy. Um, yeah. You know, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, I mean, the thing is, clearly Robert Pattinson's character has seen Casablanca, so he's making a joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, he kind of means it, but it's ironic. Yeah, I kind of... Um... Anyway, the person who came off better was... Um, what's his name? The other... The one whom I didn't recognise. Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Aaron Taylor-Johnson. So, you know, now that I know who he is, and I was just, I was just paying more attention, mm. and actually... Um, to be fair to him, yeah, because again, he doesn't come across as like a star, a star, but he's doing interesting things with his line readings and his inflections and, you know, kind of gestures. I, you know, cause it's, it's a nothing of a part, right? Mm. So he is kind of bringing some life into it, right? I think through his performance in a way that I appreciated more this time around. What I like about him, um, and I think I liked the first time. You did, yeah. Is because he's a he's a like a squadron leader. He's a military guy, and what he's having to deal with is these two spy guys who are into the time travel shit. And it's like clearly he's used to the time travel shit, right? He has experience with it because the way he talks, it's not new to him. Mm. And so he talks about you know what happens when we go through the thing and blah blah blah. And then he's in charge of giving the briefing before the big backwards-forwards war scene. Mm. So this guy's, like, used to it. And it's as though he's, like, sick and tired already of having to deal with these two chumps <laughs> who don't who, who think it's all about them. And, like, you know what I mean? Mm. There's a sense of, like, oh, God, these fucking idiots. I don't know what they're doing. Just listen to me. Yes. I kind of like about him. Well, I appreciated his performance this time around, mm. you know. Uh, I was paying attention to it. 
uh, and so um, yeah, that made it uh, that made me appreciate his contributions more than I did the first time around. Mm. Uh, I want to say something else that uh, again was an improvement for my experience this time, which was that I realized how to approach the film from the start, and that is to say. The first time round, I didn't approach it as a spy film, uh, which it clearly is. I didn't think of it as a spy film. I hadn't been clued in by the promotional material to think of it as a spy film. I thought of it as a kind of high-concept action film, which is why I think the first time I watched it and the first third of the film is spycraft, I was kind of thinking, just, you know, bring me the time stuff. Where's the time stuff? And I was kind of not that involved in the spy stuff. And this time round knowing that this is what the first third of the film is going to be. I enjoyed it more. I followed the story better. I understood better of, you know, who the Priya character was, for instance, that kind of thing. Liked all of that more. And what I also liked more is the feeling of the film transforming when it gets into the the banana room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a- after they come out of there, the film, I think, really kind of transforms into much more of an action chase thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas up until then, it's been a spy... Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a it's a failure, you know, because if you're looking at it as a spy thing, I mean, the 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 thing that keeps coming to mind is the night manager for me, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, which is, uh, it was it was great television and it was glamorous and exciting and tense, you know, and all the spy thing and the thing about being discovered and the thing of figuring out, you know, the plot as it goes along in relation to that which was hidden and then revealed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. That was like really fantastic, I thought, in the night manager. Whereas, you know, it it didn't excite me in those ways here, you know. So I think, yeah. you know, if you're seeing it as a spy film and you're comparing it to really good spy films, it it fails that way as well. I I appreciate that, and you're not the only person to make the comparison with the night manager. Yes, I, I've noticed this. Um, yeah, it's it's something that's come up, and that that particular comparison hadn't hit me, but it's absolutely obvious when mm. when you point it out, and it is right. Um, although something that I think this does have in common with a lot of spy films, actually, including the more conventional, like James Bond, as opposed to the you know, uh, kind of non-franchise things, is um, I think they all benefit from second viewings, those films. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I very often come out having lost track of various plot things in those films. And again, it's a second viewing that I go, oh, here's where this is, oh, that's where that was, oh, here's the information I could have got, blah, blah, blah. Everything makes more sense. The second time I think in films, a regular spy film, as this does. I, I think that's true of almost every type of film now, because I think ever since the advent of DVDs, for sure, you know, kind of filmmakers know that you're forwarding and, you know, uh, rewinding and, you know, you watch the film over. I mean, you know, kind of people would buy the films in the expectation, as opposed to renting, mm. and the expectation that it is something that they would watch many times or several times, right? So... So I think kind of films now, or certainly the ambitious ones, are designed with multiple viewings in mind. I know, but I'm talking about a specific thing in the spy genre because spy films are so deeply about information and what's hidden and what people know and the revelations that that will come to recontextualize things we already knew mm-hmm. makes sense. So, you know, so it, I think there is something quite specific to the way that information works in spy films in there particular is, there is, there is. that this shares. And so the fact that I was confused by a lot of the spy stuff and the relationships between the characters and, as I say, particularly the Priya characters' yeah. importance to the whole thing, I don't think that's such a huge problem with the film 
as oh. I'm there for the first time. Yes, well, I think... I because think it's it something that I would expect any spy film to make more sense of the second time, which it does. Uh, but, no, you would also expect spy films to make sense of it the first time around. Because you can't generate suspense in a viewer yeah, unless they understand what's at stake. Mm. Well, maybe that's just me. Like I say, it may just be me that I always find much more clarity the second time to the extent that actually I probably was confused the first time in pretty much well, any spy film. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not criticising that you find more clarity the second time, but, you know, in any spy film, you also have a certain degree of clarity the first time around. Otherwise, you know, kind of things like suspense just don't happen. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, there has to be a differential of knowledge between what you know about the character and what the character knows about the situation that they're in so that you feel the danger that they're in that they don't yet realize or something like that, right? So those things have to be clear. Otherwise, you, it doesn't work. Yeah, well, I mean, what I'm saying is maybe I'm just a shit viewer of spy films because I think I pretty much always confuse the first time. Um, all right, okay. <laughs> um, something that was recontextualized here, actually not recontextualized, just, again, made clearer that I liked, is the final boat scenes, the, the holiday in Vietnam. Um, because, you know, I suppose I'd realised the first time round that these are, well, I must have obviously known that these are the future characters having returned to the past and are playing out the boat scene, but I appreciated more this time how both of these people, Sata and Kat, are playing earlier versions of themselves, but for different reasons, and they both think that the other person... So, Sata is their ready to die and he's there because he he liked his holiday and that's where he wishes to die and he thinks that cat is the version of cat who he's just told you know give up your son mm. blah 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 and cat is the future cat who's gone back and knows that sata is the future sata but is playing the past cat who doesn't know that sata is the future sata so actually it's kind of understanding better exactly what the characters it also, were there. It also makes you appreciate Elizabeth Debicki's performance more. Yeah, I think so. You know, because you you are aware of that, yeah? Um, that she is playing somebody feeling what she once felt, but isn't feeling now, right? Yeah. Um, and you see the the difference, in because that scene is almost shown, it's shown to us at different times, yeah? Uh, and so, you know, kind of in the finale, you really see all of those nuances in the performance. So mm. I thought, I thought my, my appreciation of her increased because, A, I think she's magnificent looking and I think she's a real star if someone gives her the parts. <laughs> um, but also I think she's, she's a very good actress. I mean, she does convey all of that. Yeah, so. I agree. And like I said, I think just understanding better how that scene was operating and what those characters were doing was more enjoyable, more fun to me. You know, mm. the idea that they are both playing themselves, but in kind of different ways, mm. for different reasons, with different levels of knowledge. Mm. I like, I had more clarity the second time, and I liked it more. Mm. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I've got a note here about, um, I've made a backwards film, and it was harder than Tenet. <laughs> I made a backwards running film, ten years ago, when I was at university, which was a seven minute long thing, in a single take. And it was all set to... What's the piece on the Nutcracker? The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, is it? It was set to that. And we had to t- and, uh, and there was loads of action in it that was spe- specifically timed to the music. So I had to write this all down, 
where I had to listen to the music and write down all the important bits and then write down what was going to happen in the film and then play it all backwards and then try and film it in time. Fucking difficult. So actually, any individual thing in here is not as hard as that was. <laughs> so I deserve some credit. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, you can put it in the post. Yeah, yeah I might put it in there. I noticed the Sator Square this time. I hadn't really picked up on it the first time. But you know the, th- the Sator Square, the old Latin... Sator Arepo Tenet Opera Rotas okay. is a sentence that's a palindrome and it can also be written as a square so you can read it top to bottom or left to right. All right, okay. I, yeah. And and that shows up here. So Sator is the bad guy's name. Rotas is his company. Opera is the opera scene at the start. Arepo is the name of the guy who forges the paintings. And actually, I really picked up on the first one. I thought, Arepo, where have I heard that before? And it was only, you know, yeah. thinking about it, I picked it up. And obviously Tenet is the... The, the code word, it's the central organisation or whatever. I think you, you still don't really get a real sense of what tenet means, mm-hmm. um, but it is there. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, all of that's kind of not important because it's just window dressing. It's just yeah. names of stuff. Yeah. And, and and Nolan likes names of stuff. It's but, a game yeah, yeah. for Nolan that actually doesn't add anything to you know the expression of meaning or feeling in the film. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's 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 just window dressing and mm. whatever here's something else that I think you might you might be interested in thinking about is um, the film let Elizabeth Debicki be tall and it actually it almost fetishises her height the camera's always looking up at her mm. John David Washington by comparison is quite short I don't know how short he might be in real life maybe not that short but she's very tall and she's always got heels on as well yeah. and actually in the one scene she you know her long legs are important because she unlocks a car yeah. With them and the camera, you know, her, her skirt sort of rides up and the camera goes along her legs and really likes to look at her legs. And but it's not just a sexual thing; like she is, she has this tall. I like the use dominance. of her height. Yeah, and it spoke well of the filmmakers that they didn't try to diminish her. Yeah, that mm. yeah, because you could easily have tricked that, right? Do you remember Queen and Slim? Yes. Reminded me of that, right? Oh. Like, there's a real energy and just kind of enjoyment in seeing a shorter guy and a taller woman yes. play together. And the film makes nothing, no no comment about it or anything like that. Well, it just a, lets it be. There's a little bit of a historical comment, I mean, in the sense that, you know, one of the visual cliches of post-Brezhnev Russia, mm-hmm. right, or not only Russia, but Eastern Europe, you know, as to see these incredibly tall, glamorous models, you know, with like kind of these short, fat billionaires. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a little bit of playing into that. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's certainly the image that um, that Kenneth Branagh has with her. Mm. And there's one kind of there's one particular shot I think, which is where it's on his yacht, and it's around the time that he's picking up all the gold, and he kind of storms off somewhere, and you see him, and he's pretty squat looking. You know, and certainly compared to her, he is, and I think the film enjoys that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, does. the film enjoys the kind of short, angry, <laughs> billionaire, evil guy. I wanted to say that the war scene feels small. Yes, um, it does. And this was something that came into uh, focus for me when I was watching the the Tim Burton Batman films recently, um, because there are lots and lots of things that I like in those films, especially Batman Returns, which I've loved since I was a kid. But something that I really picked up on in those films is how you can feel 
the limits of the world, the physical limits, because everything's been shot on these sound stages. Mm. And so when, you know, there's a lot of scenes in those films which are on like the steps of the town hall and a crowd of reporters or, or, or civilians or whatever. And you can really feel the small size of the crowd and how they can't film anything too wide because, because the set will end, you know, which I felt like kind of a problem in those films. Um, but maybe it's also part of their charm. But here, the final, the war scene, you know, you're you're sent to this small, isolated Russian town. That's the idea. and Or it's like a nuclear bunker. So it's a kind of small place. But there are these wide shots, and they're even more so in IMAX, where you see the entire place, the entire mm. location, and empty space around it. You feel how actually small this is. And... Yeah, you feel a lack of people in there, even. You know, I mean, imagine how how huge it would feel. Like, remember how big it felt in um, the Dark Knight Rises, where it's like kind of all out war on the streets of Gotham by the end, and it's just fist fights left, right, and center, and a huge brawl. It felt kind of big, right? It's very interesting because I was watching I Cento Cavalieri or A Hundred Horsemen as part of the Ritrovato thing, mm-hmm. and it's a B movie. It's uh, by Vittorio Cotafavi who, you know, is often ranked with Mario Bava as, you know, one of the king of the B films in Italy. You know, and that had, like, hundreds of extras, like, thousands of extras, right? Mm. In widescreen and these battles between the Muslims and the Christians. And, you know, and actually, this film feels thin, yeah, in mm. comparison. It doesn't have, you know, that sense of sweep and scope. And it certainly doesn't have the fluidity in the action that, you know, this Italian B-movie had. Mm. Um, and actually, I felt in that scene, I mentioned on the first podcast, watching the background extras mm. and how they were just walking kind of carefully to try and look like they were in reverse, but they clearly were just walking. And, mm. and actually, it made me think, you know, this adherence to getting everything in camera that Nolan has in this instance is a problem because... If they had used CGI to computer generate some soldiers who were actually moving backwards, you know, because you could do it in the computer at a right at the right speed, doing the right actions, it would have looked a thousand times better, more convincing, more active, more alive. I would just just be smarter about the production because you know the reason why Cotafavi was able to use thousands of extras is because he went to Spain to film it in you know the early nineteen sixties where you know you could buy like a thousand extras for ten pence. Right, like you know, I yeah, those those things matter as well. Like you know, just uh, um, you know, go to a place where you can afford all the extras, uh, and kind of you know. Well, money is clearly not a problem here, though, is it? I mean, well, but maybe ease of. I mean, there's a sense about this film, mm-hmm. which I don't like, which is that locations were chosen you know, in relation to vacation spots for the director. You know, I can imagine them spending a year in advance, you know, choosing the locations, yeah, in Portofino or Vietnam, you know, all those gorgeous, expensive places. The Catamaran race, Mm. you know. I mean, what was the point of that? You could have filmed a more exciting, you know, but it it kind of... I didn't even know who was on the other Catamaran. Yeah. So... You know, I mean, there's a sense in which all of those things were not really in the service of the film, mm. that there's an ulterior motive to them. I'm not sure what it is. But My brother was annoyed. He said, he said, just because you've done Dunkirk, now you're like, oh, I can film boats. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he got really annoyed with that. I think he said something similar about the choice of locations as yes. well, like just because you want to go there. 
Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think when when it comes to specifically that thing about the action scene, money for extras clearly is not an issue because this is like a 200, 250 million dollar film. I think it's an aesthetic choice as, yeah. as they always are. And I think in this case, it was the wrong choice because that scene would have been livened up through real backwards looking people, you know, through CGI. Because it can be made to look very realistic. And Chris Nolan has used CGI. He does use CGI. But he likes to talk about how much he limits it. How little he does if he mm. can. I think it's possible to actually do that too much. Um, but, you know, like I say, money's not the issue. That bit where they blow the plane up. And gold bars just dump on the floor. Feels almost like a self-referential joke. As mm. to how much money <laughs> Chris Nolan's able to spend in his pursuit yes. of you know greatness. So, final word? I enjoyed it more the second time. I don't think any of the additional pleasures had anything to do with the IMAX, really. Mm. Other than, I suppose, that, that clarity. Like I say, I mean, I really did like looking at John David Washington. Mm. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Mm. But in terms of, you know, when it comes to cinematography, kind of artistic effect or emotional effect, I don't think it added anything to my experience. Although I'm glad that I saw it so I could find I'm, out. I'm glad that I saw it because I think... You know, this thing about the composition, you know, seeing it on, on IMAX um, developed my thinking on it. Yeah. Uh, as far as my experience of watching it, I must say I was only mildly bored. There was a, the section in the middle of the film, which I find, I found that slightly dull in the first viewing. I found dull again, but I enjoyed watching it. Uh, but but it is one of those films where like your second viewing just confirms your poor opinion that you had in your first viewing. That you understand more, but it doesn't make the film better. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, everything that I liked here, I liked the first time. Mm. I liked more here, probably. You know, understood it better. Mm. I like understanding things better. Mm. I will continue to turn over the film's logic in my head. I will continue to look forward to it to come out on home media because I'll be able to look at it closely and I will enjoy that. That is a pleasure that I don't think should be underestimated, but it's not the greatest pleasure a film can give you. I, on the other hand, will be happy never to see it again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Eavesdrop Movies, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Please like, share, and subscribe. Yes, it helps. <laughs> give us a nice, good rating if you like it on, on iTunes and stuff. It really helps. Thank okay. you. Excellent.